Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And then verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Thank you, Riley, for reading. I don't know if you've heard the phrase like someone or something is perfect for the job. So maybe um, a person and you say, you know what? She has the skills and the talents and the gifts. She meets all the requirements. I know she would be perfect for the job. Or sometimes it's a, a piece of software or equipment or some tool that you go, if we had that, if we could get that, it would be perfect for the job. There's a job, and this would help me get the job done, and it would just be perfect for it. The bottom line today, we are going to be talking about Jesus being perfect for the job of being a priest, of being our high priest, as Riley just read a moment ago. We've been looking at the book of Hebrews, particularly calling our attention to the fact that Jesus is so much better it's a key word in Hebrews, is better. Jesus is so much better. When we talk about priests, what I would recognize is in a crowd this size, there would be lots of different ideas attached to that word priest. So some of you may come from a religious tradition where you had interactions with a priest, and so that's going to have certain ideas and connotations to you. Others of you... Uh, the idea of a priest may be a long way from anything you've really known or experienced. So there may not have been anything of a priest other than maybe at times that's a, a character in a, in a particular movie or something like that, but you've not really known one personally. Either way, what really matters is that we appreciate what the Bible says and let the Bible fill out our categories for understanding what a priest is. What is a priest? And basically, even Paula alluded to it a moment ago, a priest is a mediator. So a priest is someone who goes in between, which does imply something. If a priest is a mediator, if a priest is one who goes in between, it does imply there is some distance otherwise if the priest wasn't mediating. So if we're getting along and everything is perfect, then we don't go, hey, we're getting along here. Let's call in a mediator to help us. You don't need that because everything seems to be right. But let a person get offended. Let a person be wronged. Let some injustice happen. And that is when you go, actually a mediator might help us. Not, not someone who is just going like, to lean heavily toward one side, but is actually going to be able to understand both parties and somehow bring us together. And that is what the, the biblical understanding of a priest is. So here's the dilemma. Here's why a priest becomes so important in the Bible. So important in chapter 4 of Hebrews, so important in chapter 5 of Hebrews. That is because there really is a divide. 
There really is a divide between God and his presence and his character and everything that makes him. And we, we sang about it right at the beginning of our service that he is holy. He is set apart everything that makes him God. And then there is us and everything that is broken in our world, everything that's messed up. The, the way sin has come in and ruined things. And there's such a deep divide that a priest has to go in between. The writer of Hebrews is going to take from Hebrews 4 all the way to Hebrews 10. And chapter after chapter after chapter, he's going to unpack more and more about the priest that we have, Jesus, and actually his sacrifice, what he has done. So we're going to be talking about this for a few weeks as we go through Hebrews, Lord willing. But right now we're kind of wading into those waters and figuring out, okay, what is it as we get introduced to the idea of a priest what are we talking about? So this is what I'd like to do. I'd actually like to reverse the order of the chapters a little bit. I'd love for us to spend several minutes looking at Hebrews 5 and then come back to the last three verses of Hebrews 4. I love those last few verses of Hebrews 4. I, I think I could say they're some of my favorite in the whole Bible. And so kind of even to set that up, I'd like for us to spend some time in Hebrews chapter 5. So if you have a copy of God's Word, whether it's a paper copy, electronic copy, let's look at chapter 5 and verse 1 of Hebrews. The scripture says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts, to offer sacrifices, for sins, assumed here is this ruptured relationship with God that requires someone designated by God, someone appointed by God to offer, did you see that, gifts and sacrifices for sins. I don't know that anybody, I mean, we shouldn't pretend that we live in a world without sin. I think we most in this room would know, like, sin really does begin to have a devastating effect on lots of things. Whether it's recognizing sin separates us from God or whether recognizing sin and its effects have a, it just has a contaminating effect. It begins to spread and, and make things worse. Or we recognize the effects of sin making us feel guilt and feel shame. Or the way sin has a way of kind of coming through our lives and leaving us feeling completely lost. Or the fact that sin makes us betray things that, and people that we'd never want to do. Or sin has this enslaving power where we feel like we can't get out. So this is what it's talking about. So much so that gifts and sacrifices have to be offered to God to deal with this issue of our sin. And, and we know that because we are stuck we feel stuck often by sin. We just can't imagine our way, like we can't imagine our way out of the problem. There's no amount of just kind of positivity that could really help here. We could conjure up all sorts of ideas and tell ourselves it's not really that big of a deal. Maybe if I can just think my way out of sin, but then you wake up and you're you and I wake up and I'm still me and I realize I can't just pretend. And I also can't just like, work really hard to clean up my mess as much as I would like to, as much as I'd like to be so self-empowered to go, you know what, I take care of my own messes. If I make a mess, I clean it up. 
And so I'm just going to get the mop bucket out of my self-righteousness. And I'm, I'm just going to, like with myself, I'm going to clean up the mess I've made. I realize I made a mess. I'm sorry about that. And I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it right. But then, I don't know, you, you live long enough and you, you do some things and you realize, I don't know that I can clean this mess up. I don't know that I can make atonement for what I've done, the harm I've caused, the person I've become, the way it's hurt other people. And then you come to the conclusion, like, I need help outside of myself. It's not going to be my imagination or my work that's going to clean everything up. I'm going to need help outside of myself. I wonder, have you come to that point? I wouldn't assume just because you're at church that you have. That's a hard point to come to. It's a hard point to come to the fact that I, I can't rescue myself. I need someone else. I have to look outside of myself. The Bible keeps pointing us to this, even from the beginning pages of Scripture, especially from the first few books of the Bible. We're introduced to this idea of a priest that would go in between. I mean, the nation of Israel, the people of God in Israel. God designated that there would be a priest and then there's all these priests and then there's a high priest. If we were asking like, okay, who would be perfect for the job of a priest? I think one of the qualifications we would say is that person would have to be able to approach God. So again, if we're thinking of the idea of a priest, I think someone perfect for the job of being a priest would have to be able to draw near to approach God. If they can't go to God, then they're not really of use to us as a priest. They've got to be able to approach God, approach God with gifts and sacrifices. That's what verse 1 describes. Acting on our behalf, can the, uh, can the priest approach God for us? And the only way someone can approach God is if God designates them to do that. I can't just decide, well, based on who I am and what I've done, I will approach God. No, in Scripture, a priest has to be designated or appointed. So as we're thinking of perfect for the job of priest, we would think, okay, it's someone who can approach God, but there's more. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, he can, this priest, this high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Hold on to those two categories, the ignorant and the wayward. Why can the high priest do that since he himself is beset with weakness? Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. Just as he does those for, just as he does for those of the people. He deals gently. And here, his dealing gently is due to to another aspect of being perfect for the job of priest, and that is he has understanding. So a high priest, if he's going to be effective at the job, he'll have to be able to approach God, but also have understanding, understanding the ignorant, understanding the wayward. Some of that understanding comes from the fact that for the high priest there in the time of Israel, they would have to offer, before they could offer a sacrifice for the nation, for the people of God, they would have to offer a sacrifice for themselves first. And so you can imagine as he is offering, whether it's an animal or, or uh, some food offering, recognizing this is my sin that has to come first before I can offer a sacrifice for anybody else. It's a reminder, every high priest that ever was appointed or designated was weak. 
there is something about recognizing your weakness. There is something about recognizing your weakness that has a way of humbling yourself in lots of areas of life. So you have a physical health issue or someone close to you does, and it's, it's amazing how, how gentle you might become toward other people, how you don't just want to pound them, or you have some relationship friction. And it's amazing what that does. When you begin to see your own limits, you begin to see your own weakness. It's amazing the empathy, the sympathy that comes to other people. And I think that is exactly what's being described here. Any priest that feels that weakness would look at someone ignorant. Someone that's just naive to how the world works. Someone that just made a series of foolish decisions. Someone that didn't ask for help. Someone that found themselves getting manipulated into a certain situation they should have never been in. And I think any priest that feels their weakness would go, I I at least can identify with where they are. The ignorant, but there's also the wayward, the person that didn't really start off. Their their first thought wasn't, I'm just going to rebel against God. I'm just going to do things my own way, shake my fist in in God's face and say, I'm going to do it my way. But no, no, the person that kind of made one decision, one decision, another decision, then they realize it's gone way, way out of hand. The person who deceived one person, then another person, another person, the one who told this lie and this lie and this lie. And then all of a sudden, there's like too many secrets and there's too much distance and there's too much is broken and it's too far back home and there's too much pressure. And, and there, there are times where we didn't set out to deliberately defy God, but here we realize what a mess we've made, the ignorant and the wayward and a priest that has understanding, even if they don't even if they don't affirm sin or excuse it, they at least can appreciate some of the dynamics, humanly speaking. Verse 4 continues to unpack this understanding of what our high priest is. It says that no one, remember, no one just said, kind of says, I'll be a priest. No, no, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And now we have a compare and contrast, seeing Jesus is so much better. Verse 5, so also Christ didn't exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, here's a quote from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I've begotten you, as he says also in another place, which is Psalm 110, you are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, it's like all these threads, and some of these we're going to explore. Hebrews 7 is more about Melchizedek. We're going to look into these a little bit deeper as we go on in this series, uh, God willing. But these themes of Jesus being the son of God and Jesus being the high priest and all of those coming together wrapped up in him. No one in the Bible warrants these kinds of descriptions. As impressive as Moses and David and Elijah and even John the Baptist are, no one warrants these comparisons. No one gets this kind of recognition that Jesus was something categorically different. As it sets him up to be the son forever and the high priest forever. Again, so we get really clear on that kind of first part of the job. He can approach God. Yes, he can, and he can do so forever. But what about that second part? Does he understand? Can he appreciate where we are? Can he understand us? 
It's almost as if the writer of Hebrews anticipates that. Look at verse 7. I really do want you to look at these verses because they describe something so sharp, so pointed, so powerful. There's not too many other places in Scripture that describe it quite like this. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So think about God the Son, loud cries and tears. And he offered these prayers up to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, although he was a son, although he's a faithful son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And it takes us back to the days of his flesh, the days when Jesus walked on this earth. And what we know is Jesus prayed all the time. He prayed all the time. We're told that in Scripture. He would kind of move away from people and pray. He'd pray to his Father. We have words. We have recognition of exactly words that he said to his Father. This, these verses seem to describe something even different. This idea of praying with loud cries and tears, asking to be delivered from death, it takes us back to one place in particular, and that is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And some of you will be familiar with that. All, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about this moment, this intense moment when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he prays to his father that night, in Luke 22, it says it like this, then he withdrew, withdrew and from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he began to pray. So I think this is what Hebrews is referring to. Maybe not just this, but certainly this. He prayed, Father, if you're willing Take this cup, take this cup of suffering away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in anguish, verse 44, he prayed more fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. That's the way Luke recorded it, the way John records it is similar, but it gives us even another angle. It says in John 12, Jesus speaking, now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, this is why I came to this hour. So instead of saying, save me, I'm going to pray something very differently. Father, glorify your name. And then Jesus heard the voice from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Such a holy moment where Jesus is experiencing temptation and agony and anguish is all attached to this. It's very real, it's very physical, but it's more than that. We are getting a window into what it looks like for God the Son, for God the Son to be under such pressure, pressure that he has to navigate all kinds of complexities and hardships. And he's asking a question that maybe you asked this week, and that is, is there any other way? Do I have to go through that? Do I have to do this? Jesus is enduring that sort of agony. This is what it looks like. If you need a picture, if you need it framed out, what does it look like to completely rely on the Father? When you say, like, Father, my life is literally in your hands. I am letting it go. I'm not holding on. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like when you know you'll be mistreated, betrayed, deserted, Humiliated, Jesus endures and prays. This is what it means to have nearly 
everything that means something to you taken away, stripped away. To the point where Jesus has in the garden, pretty much all he has is the Father. And he says, that's enough. I want you more than anything else. Here's the confidence, the trust, the endurance needed to like keep your grip and hold on. It's right here with Jesus praying these prayers. We see obedience and obedience to the Father is never theoretical or hypothetical. It always like meets real concrete situations. Will you obey here doing this? It's not just whether you think you will obey, but will you obey right here doing this? And here we hear from Jesus saying, not my will. Knowing what the next 24 hours would hold, Jesus said, your will be done. If it means you get glory, my life is in your hands. And as dark and as real and as hard and as lonely as that was, what it does tell us in this passage is that when Jesus prayed that prayer, the Father heard it and answered it. Answered it in the form of like literally raising Jesus back to life again where, where death had no power over him. He was raised out of death. He, del- he was delivered out of death. And it also tells us good news here that Jesus learned obedience, not in, the, not in the way that you and I would have to learn obedience. We learn obedience because we're disobedient and like, okay, I've learned now to obey. Jesus never was disobedient, but there is something about obeying where the pressure he was under, what kind of level does it take? What kind of level of love and trust and devotion has, has to be in place? For you to say, I will obey you in this, in this moment. Again, not hypothetical, not theoretical, but he obeys right there. He obeys all the way through. Which is why in verse 9 of Hebrews 5, verse 9 says this, and being made perfect, which is an interesting way, talking about Jesus learning obedience and being made perfect, is just different terminology, so we have to think hard about this. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to the all who obey him. He was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? It does mean this. Perfect for the job. Accomplishing everything he was supposed to accomplish. Becoming everything he needed to become. Doing everything he was supposed to do. You see, to be the perfect high priest, you have to be able to approach God. To be the perfect high priest, you have to have understanding and sympathy with the people that you are helping, but you also have to get the job done. You also have to be effective. And when we read this, that Jesus has now become the source of eternal salvation for all those who will obey, he, what it's saying is he's effective. He's effective at a high priest. So where you and I were separated from God, He has closed that gap of separation. Now we've been brought to God. Where you and I were estranged from God, he's become the the source of eternal salvation, and he's reconciled us. Where, Where we were contaminated, he has made us clean. Where we were guilty, he has made us righteous. Where we were rebels, he has made us followers. Where we were enslaved, he's become the source of eternal salvation. He's given us freedom. Where we were lost, he has found us and brought us all the way home. Where we were broken, he has made us whole. 
It's made us complete. This is what it means. He is effective. He is the effective high priest. So we ask the questions. Who is perfect for the job? Can Jesus approach God? And we say, yes, he can. And he did. Does Jesus understand us? Can he represent us before God? And we would have to say, he does. Can Jesus bring us to God? He has. Which means he's perfect for the job of being our great high priest. So when you roll back into Hebrews 4, and you begin to read these words again, some of my favorite in all of the Bible. Let's hear them again. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. In light of all that, since we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us do this. It's kind of a command and an invitation. Let us hold on. Let us keep our grip. Let's keep saying this, I believe we have a priest. He's ours. We need him and we have him. We have a great high priest and he's passed through the heavens, but don't, don't mistake that. It's not as if like now there's distance, so much distance that we can't get to God. No, he has passed through the heavens, but then quickly it says in verse 15, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He's like us, even if he's not the exact same as us. And he's like us in this way. The devil tried to make him sin in every way that the devil continues to tempt us. And yet in each of those realms where you feel tempted and where I feel tempted, where I struggle, where you struggle in each of those realms, Jesus went deep in those realms and came out victorious, came out delivering. Jesus was faithful. Which in you, you put those things together again and you go, Jesus, you're the one who can approach God. You're the one who understands me. You're the one who can represent me. You're the one who can be effective. You go back to Hebrews 4.16 and it says this, in light of all this, in light of everything we've talked about, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us with like boldness, frankness, not hesitating, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. This, this grace where we're not in a hostile environment. We're not like trying to get Jesus' attention when he'd rather do a million other things, but let us go to that throne of grace so that we would receive mercy we are at God's mercy, and here it says we will receive it. We need God's help, and it says we will find it. We will receive mercy and find grace to help us. And that grace will be timely. It will be just what we need when we need it. We need God's help, and we'll experience his grace, his kindness, and he will show us his love. It's hard to know the layer upon layer upon layer of good news this is of what this invites us to do, the response that we're invited to have is to like, let's go with boldness. Let's go to him. I was thinking about some of like how great of news this is this week. I got a little, I got a reminder on one of our cars. I got a little reminder from the city of Newark. 
they put this little paper slip saying I had parked in a spot longer than I had paid for parking in that slot. So they were nice enough to give me a kind reminder and invite me to uh, pay for that kind reminder. And I thought about that because as I was paying it, not, not too happily, but uh, there, there you go. As I was paying it, I, I was reminded of all the sermons I've heard and all the illustrations I've heard of how you know, we've committed a, an offense and we owe and there's this debt that we have and that Jesus steps in and pays that debt and like the beautiful illustration of that. And yet when I read Hebrews 4, and I can appreciate the analogy and the symbolism, when I read Hebrews 4, I'm reading about something much more than just like I got a spiritual parking ticket paid. When you start reading about a great high priest, it tells you that God, God isn't trying to ding me for some technicality. Saying, okay, well, we can take care of this. Just pray this prayer, do this thing, and then it'll be all square with us. I hope you realize that the work Jesus was doing on the cross was so much more than that. He comes not just as someone who can clear up a few things that, you know, you messed up in this world. He's come on a much greater mission. Is there a path for you to be in a right relationship with God? To do that, you will need a priest to make that path possible. To where you not only stand in God's presence of holiness, but you also realize his love as well. You need a priest. Are you going to ever be able to talk to God? You are going to need a priest who understands and can approach God? What are you going to do with the internal guilt and the shame you feel, the reconciliation you want, the forgiveness we crave when you've messed so many things up? What are you going to do? I know what you need. I know what I need. I need a priest. What about those moments where you go, it's too bad. It's too awful. It's too much. I've done too much damage. I, I've, I've hurt too many people. I've caused too many people to suffer. Or what about the time where you go, I, I, I need help, I need wisdom, I need strength to hold on and persevere. I need, I need help not to just go into some of the darkest places in this world. I need help. I need help to do the right thing. I need help to say no. I need help to resist, resist everything that would pull me down and, and trust in the Lord. I need that help. And here you have so much more than you could ever have asked for. You have a throne of grace with a great high priest that says you come. And let's ask with boldness. So we have this priest. Can he, can he understand us? Can he represent us? He can and he does. Can, can he approach God for us? He can and he does. Can he be effective? Can he bring us to God permanently and completely? He can and he does. So actually what I'd, I'd love for us to do to close our time together today is I at least want to give you the opportunity to take advantage of the invitation, let us come to the throne of grace with confidence. We sang it a moment ago, before the throne of God above, I have, I have this great high priest whose name is love, and I'd love for you to talk to him because I don't know if being in the presence of God makes you uncomfortable. In lots of ways, it should on your own. You should recount the sin that would actually exclude you, but I'm asking you not to sit there today, but to recognize you have a priest who has joined you, 
who, who knows that temptation that you fell prone to this week or that fear that you are, that just has your number right now. And I don't want you to hesitate. I want you to go and approach with confidence. So Natalie's going to play for a few minutes as we settle our heart and as we go to the Lord with confidence. And then I'm going to ask Charles to come and close us in prayer after that. So take some time to pray. Go to the throne with boldness.